HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people who we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Samin Nosrat, a chef, cooking teacher, and author of the multiple award-winning New York Times bestselling Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Samin about the big four elements of cooking, her journey from Chez Panisse to culinary sensation. And in our last segment, we'll hear Samin's Julia moment. She's promised me it's a good one. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Two of Julia's notable qualities were her enthusiasm and her passion for teaching. Her enthusiasm was born from a genuine excitement about food and how important cooking is to a life well lived. Julia got great satisfaction from sharing her discoveries with others, which in turn made her a natural teacher. It was like Julia always had a terrific new secret she could just not wait to share with you. It only takes about five minutes with Samin Nosran or a beautifully written book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking, that you realize she embodies these Julia qualities. Her passion to teach you how to think about cooking and her enthusiasm for sharing what she's learned leaps off the page. You realize it's this genuine infectious excitement the ability to be an energetically effective communicator on paper is what makes for a great food writer. The Foundation's introduction to Samin was when her book was awarded the IACP Julia Child First Book Award this spring. It was also named IACP's Cookbook of the Year and recently won a James Beard Award for Best General Cookbook. 
The IACP Julia Child First Book Award specifically recognizes a breakout book by a first-time author, harkening back to how Julia started. It also represents the importance to Julia, IACP, and the foundation of fostering great food writing. So in that spirit, as we talked about in episode five with IACP's Martha Holmberg, the foundation now supports the IACP Julia Child First Book Award with a grant designed to spur on the author's food writing career. So we're delighted to have the chance to delve into all of that with Samin Rainel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What an incredible introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I try, I try. I'm really excited to talk to you about all these adventures you've embarked upon since this book came out, or maybe I should say since the idea for the book first started. So I think that's where I'd like to start. I think you've had a really fascinating journey, both in your career and even getting this book out. So, and I think that that story is always sort of helpful and illuminating and inspiring to people. So, so could we start there? Tell us about your journey. Sure. Um, So my family's from Iran and my parents moved to California right before I was born in the late seventies. And I grew up eating the most delicious home-cooked Iranian food in San Diego that my mom just, I always say my brothers and I spent 40% of our childhood in the backseat of the Volvo station wagon because my mom was just always driving around Southern California looking for the ingredients that tasted like home. And, um, you know, like the best cilantro or the best lamb or the best feta cheese. And she was an incredible cook, but... um, so I grew up with taste in my mouth, like amazing mm. sort of, I definitely got a palate education, but other than helping her clean fava beans or peel eggplants, I definitely did not have a particular interest in cooking. I had an interest in eating as a kid. And then <laughs> um, I moved north to Berkeley to attend university. And during my orientation here, I was an English major. I wanted to be a writer. Um, somebody said, oh, you know, there's this amazing restaurant, this famous restaurant in Berkeley called Chez Panisse. And this was 1997. And so there was not the same kind of like chef culture, celebrity, certainly not celebrity chef culture. So, And I didn't grow up eating in fine dining restaurants. So I didn't really understand like what a famous restaurant <laughs> was. And mm. it sort of went in one ear and out the other. And... um But then the next year, I fell in love, and my boyfriend was from the Bay Area, and so we spent a lot of time eating together. That was just, like, what we loved to do, and he showed me all of his favorite places, and he had always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse. So we saved saved up $200 and and went to dinner there. It took seven months to save all the money, and so we went to this dinner, and I had never been to a restaurant like that before, and I was really struck by more than anything else, by the way I felt like I was eating in somebody's home. And um, it was just an extraordinary experience of feeling really taken care of. The food was delicious, but I wasn't a stranger to delicious food. And it was more just that I felt like all of our needs were taken care of. And that, yeah, I just, I never had eaten in a restaurant like that before. And the you were welcome to the table. Play. Yeah. (laughs) And so the dessert was chocolate souffle and the server, when she brought it, she said, have you ever had souffle before? I think 
you know, I was 19 years old wearing like a denim skirt. I was, it was pretty <laughs> obvious we had never been in a restaurant like that before. And so she, <laughs> she said, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you poke a hole in the top and you pour the sauce in and that way every bite has sauce. So I did that and I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I, you know, not knowing probably that it was like the rudest possible response, I said, oh, yeah, it's really good. But, you know, what would make it even better is a glass of cold milk because I love, you know, like any normal warm-blooded person, I love warm chocolate things with cold milk. And um, I didn't know at the time, like, how rude it was to tell somebody how to make their thing better. And also... (laughs) And thank God you weren't in France, actually, when you joined. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> and then in traditional, like, European cooking and just, like, the idea, you know, in, in like, yeah, the etiquette, I guess, that, like... Well, I think in Europe, only children drink milk anyway. That that's, It's just sort of an American thing to enjoy. I, I, myself, enjoy a good glass of usually skim milk with chocolate, but it, it's kind of considered, I think, quite American. Totally, and also very bait. Like you know, I had no idea that Europeans were like, "Oh, only babies drink milk after ten a.m." Basically, <laughs> so like even to have a cappuccino after like breakfast is considered disgusting. So basically, I was like completely showing my hand, and so. <laughs> but I think because I just did it so innocently, she was like, "Oh, you know," she was just. I I, I was so naive, and so she brought me milk, and then she also brought us. Um, each a glass of dessert wine to sort of teach us the refined accompaniment. And it was just this very sweet interaction. I think it's an amazing example of front of house service that and maybe another reason that Chez Panisse is... Absolutely. Yeah, because so many restaurants would have never acted that way. And, and But what, a, what a, an incredible moment to be received in the spirit in which it was intended. Totally. A hundred... Yeah, I, I will never forget it. You know, it was such a warm gesture and especially now that i understand you know so much about how restaurants work and also just about etiquette and all those things i i totally i just think it's a perfect example of you know the way Chez Panisse tries to take care of its guests and so um it really was just wonderful experience and it left me so inspired and i always had jobs throughout college so i uh wrote a letter to Alice Waters and to Chez Panisse asking for a job, and I brought it in. There, I had a lot of friends who were busters there throughout college, so I thought I had a shot. So I brought it in, and they said, oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager. So they brought me over to the floor manager's office, and when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. So we sort of <laughs> immediately recognized each other. <laughs> and I think she was really desperate. I never confirmed this, but I think she was very desperate because she said, oh, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> no, it's that amazing thing. Someone would probably just quit, right? And they, they and you were offering her a solution. Totally. So I started bussing tables the next day. And, you know, the very first thing they do is they walk you through the kitchen to, like, lead you into the dining room to start vacuuming. And the kitchen, was, I just had never seen a place like that. It was so beautiful. And the people, it was so calm and organized and the way people moved it was just hypnotic. And so I pretty immediately, within a few weeks, started begging them to volunteer in the kitchen. And um, and then eventually, like within a year and a half, I, I had stopped bussing tables completely and I began working as an intern. And what was so um, 
amazing, I guess, about the whole thing and overwhelming was, you know, by then I'd been in, in there every day for, for over a year eating and tasting and watching. And I would come to these menu meetings the way we start, start the day every day because the menu is different every single day. And so the chef sits down and, and explains his or her ver- vision for the dinner and for each dish. And then the cooks take notes and then they just get up and start cooking. But in the meantime, you know, they had given me this long list of books to read, including, you know, Julia's books. And so I had gone home and was cooking from books and reading these books. And I had a relationship to cookbooks sort of was my primary educational relationship. And then watching what cooks would do at work wasn't at all what I, I you know, that wasn't at all. It didn't reflect how I understood they didn't have a cookbook propped up above the exactly because there were no books and there were no recipes and there were no you know precise temperatures and so it was just really mind-boggling and overwhelming for me to sit next to these people you know and at that point it was 2001 the restaurant had just won like gourmet magazine's number one restaurant in america and these people were extraordinary cooks you know some of the best cooks in the world who'd been working for over 20 years and I knew nothing. So it just, the gap of knowledge was so vast <laughs> that it was really overwhelming. And I always just felt like I would never catch up. And I didn't understand how they had memorized all of these recipes from all of these books. And over time, I realized that that's not what they had done, that they had, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that they didn't know the specifics of every piece of information. So they, they just had sort of like large pools of experience. They were curious. And that ultimately, like, I saw this way that they were able to, you know, they were just constantly referring back to these four elements, to salt, fat, acid, and heat. We were always tasting for salt. We were always salting our meat in advance. We were always very carefully choosing the fats and how we treated them to get different textures and flavors. And, you know, we always were tasting for acid and and tweaking the acid, and acid really seemed to bring food to life in a way that I didn't really understand before that. And even with heat, with temperature, there wasn't sort of a focus on the precise temperature as much as there was on the way that food was responding. And it didn't matter, you know, sometimes I was sent to cook things in the wood oven, and sometimes I cooked them downstairs in, in the regular oven, or sometimes if we ran out of stove space, I was pushed from the stove into the fire, onto the fireplace. And so um, there were ways that we had to learn to see how the food was responding to the elements rather than to rely on precise recipes. And once I realized that this, these four things were sort of like the points on the compass, I went to the chef and I said, oh, so um, is this, you know, I, I see it now, salt, fat, acid, and heat. And he said, yeah, we all know that. <laughs> And I was like, well, why didn't anybody tell me? I felt really betrayed, and I, I didn't see it reflected in any of the books. And he said, yeah, he said he's like, all cooks know that. All cooks intuitively understand this. And so I, at that time, really feeling like I wasn't, like I was still an amateur and I wasn't a person who knew anything, I just was like, well, if no one's explained this to me, then um, no one's explaining this to home cooks, and maybe one day I'll write a book about this. So it just became the system into which I filed everything that I learned and then eventually the way that I taught younger cooks how to cook. And um, it just was my shorthand and it w- and it just made sense to me. And then as I began traveling, I went to Italy and Iran and Pakistan and China and all these different places. I just kept seeing 
that no matter, you know, what your precise ingredients or techniques were, that these four elements really were universal. So it just made sense eventually for me to, you know, once I had, you know, 15 years of cooking experience instead of 15 months, I was able to sit down and start writing it and, and making sense of everything. Well, I love it. it. It's a framework, basically, and it's a framework that made sense to you. But I love the kind of Julia-esque parallel that you had this epiphany moment, and then you just felt impassioned to learn as much as you could about it for yourself. And then when you felt like you'd gotten to the, to at least the the place where you felt satisfied with the basic, you were like, I need to share this with everyone because they should know this and it would really help them. And I, I just think that parallel to 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 Julia is really a neat one. Oh, thank you. I mean, anytime I'm compared to her, it's I can't even really believe it, and I don't think I deserve it necessarily, so that's amazing. But I do think, to me, I, I both in the... I, it's so clear to me, the memory, that I knew that if I didn't know, that other people didn't know, and that they needed to know. I'm, I'm a big gossip. I'm very conspiratorial. Like, it's just this idea that I want to share everything, <laughs> you know? I want everyone in on the secret, and so that's a big part of it. But also, I just, um, throughout the work, like, and I have always, and maybe because it's, I'm, I'm the child of immigrants, or I don't know, throughout all of this work, I've always felt that the best way that I can you know, serve people and the best way that I could be the best possible teacher is to remember what it felt like to be powerless and to not have the information and to be scared in the kitchen and, you know, to really put myself in the shoes of like the people that I'm trying to teach. And so that's, it took me a while to figure out how to write like that. It took me a while to figure out the exact voice to settle on. But once I did, I just knew that it was right, and and I was constantly teaching, you know, actual humans, <laughs> and so um, I could always refer to what was working for them to help guide me into making the best possible book. And I think you say that, but I think I, I've worked with enough um, people in sort of all sides, cooking teachers, at cooking schools, at at um, you know, stores that teach cooking, but with authors and you and chefs in particular, and not everyone is a natural teacher. A lot of people are natural cooks, but it doesn't mean they really know how to explain it to the average person. And so I think that insight that you have is, you you know, shared amongst teachers, but is unique in that way, because not everybody is gifted at being able to communicate that way. And I that's why I think it's really terrific that you, you were motivated to, 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 once you discovered it, to then, you know, codify it and share it. Thank you. I mean, I definitely had some incredible teachers along the way. And I, um, so that, that I had good role models, but I've also learned, you know, just as I've grown up that just cause you're good at something doesn't mean you're good at explaining it or, or teaching it. And I really wanted to commit to, to me, it's, it's really funny because I love writing. I love writing about food. I love cooking and sitting around the table. I love, there's so much I love about this world, but when it really boils down to it, the food I almost could care less about, you know, especially if I go to someone's house, it doesn't matter what you're serving to me because the experience is so much more than the specific dish or the specific food. And so food, it's, it's, it's one thing to be a cook. It's one thing to, yeah, to sort of obsess over the food. But for me, I, I think it's just such an incredible tool to bring people together. So 
I, I, I do feel really lucky to have um, sort of another angle into all of this and, and getting to share and explain and, you know, help illuminate things for people is really, I think, my, my passion un- underneath the thing. And food just happens to be my medium. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the, the, the food is this conduit to sharing and to human experience, and you're kind of looking at it holistically. Exactly, exactly. So I wanted to ask you only because selfishly, I have this personal connection is, is that I did not come from a family that cared about food or was terribly interested in food. Um, and so I'm sort of still the outlier. And but my epiphany of caring about food and wanting to cook for myself came in Italy. And you uh, you also had this, um, as a sort of Persian-American des- decision to go off to Italy as part of your education. I was just curious to ask you, having that shared sort of passionate spark for Italian food, but then as it broader extends into learning about food and cooking, I wanted to ask you, what do you think it is about Italy and Italian food that kind of engenders that kind of response? Oh man, I mean, I feel I there's just something about Italy that is so warm and inviting. So something I think about the culture is definitely there's just and that it really spoke to me. I think there's a lot of similarities between like Iranian culture and Italian culture and hospitality and warmth and hot bloodedness. <laughs> so there's that I think. But in terms of the food, there is a way where Italian culture, Italian food, I feel is sort of everywhere, and I think um, even bad pizza and pasta are still pretty good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not bad, but 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 average. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, bad. Yeah, you know, like, I grew up eating pizza from Round Table Pizza. It was the pizzeria closest to our house, and I just thought pizza was the best food. You know, now it's probably been 20 years since I had Round Table Pizza. I probably still like it because it would be like a childhood nostalgia thing. You'll have but, that taste memory. You know, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. a way where the ingredients are so simple. The focus on like balance is just so fundamental. It's, it's, um, I don't know, it's crowd pleasing. And so I, I liked this question and it's one that I've never thought about before, but it is sort of a, a way just the other day. In fact, I was at this conference, this food conference where people were talking, and it was mostly um, like immigrants and um, and people of color at this conference, and we were talking about um, the ways that different communities have sort of um, assimilated Italian dishes into their own immigrant cooking. And so this woman was telling me about like Ethiopian pasta, where her mom would take like the Ethiopian goat stew and mix it with mm. spaghetti. <laughs> You know, serve it as like European spaghetti, and then we have you know my mom always made cadig um, is our our Persian rice, the crust of Persian rice that's at the bottom yeah. of every um, pot of rice, and my mom would make um, pasta cadig every time she did. So she would th- like mix the spaghetti with the sauce and then put it back in the pot to make a crust on the bottom. Oh wow! Yeah, no, that I've, is it good. Or your mom's is good. Oh my god! Well, to me, it's delicious, and I actually wrote my next column about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially for readers who maybe not that familiar. I mean, essentially, you're you're almost burning it, right? Oh, it is pretty much burnt. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah it's like burnt crust, um, and it's like crispy pasta. It's nothing you would ever see in Italy, 
but it's such a fundamental part of my childhood. And so there's just a way, I think, because the ingredients in Italian food are so simple and so straightforward, that they lend themselves, you know, they they are kind of, um, it doesn't take a lot to relate to it, you know, and, and there's a way where, like, there's a way it can kind of make sense to you no matter where you're from. You know, so many cultures around the world have noodles, <laughs> And so there's a way that sort of makes sense. And it just doesn't seem that foreign, I think, to people from no matter where they're from. And I, I suspect that that's a big part of it. Also, it's just, you know, Parmesan cheese is the most delicious ingredient in the whole wide world. <laughs> like it's <being laughs> well, I think there's a purity to all it. The taste buds. <laughs> and so like any, any cuisine built on Parmesan cheese, I think is going to be a winner. So. <laughs> Well, I think there is a purity to it. I'm going to challenge you to go a little deeper. I I, I always think that one of the things is Italians have a refer, reverence for food and for where food comes from and how it should be that is culturally pervasive. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or urban or rural. There's – and maybe – globalization is chipping away at that but that you know just like when you get to italy and you learn all these rules like no one has a cappuccino after 10 11 a.m and if you are that's crazy and in some ways it never comes across as like insulting or too rigid it's more that well these are the structures of how we eat and do you think that that i think for me was a part of it does that resonate with you yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, or like no cheese on fish and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's so many, there are so, 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 so many rules. And it is, I, I find a lot of humor in it now. I poke a lot of fun at it a lot of times, especially like the regionalism of it. You know, I, I was in Florence. I lived primarily in Florence when I lived there. And I remember one night I made dinner for my friends and I made these um, stuffed squash blossoms, you know, which is a really typical thing that you get in a Roman trattoria. Mm. And people came to dinner and they were like, this is amazing. You've invented the most incredible thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've never seen this before. And I was like, this is from 150 miles away. You know what I mean? There's just a way where I was like, how have you never had this, <laughs> you know? No, that's true. We had an Itali- we had an Italian nanny recently in London, and I was constantly introducing her to foods, and including spaghetti and meatballs, which Americans forget is not Italian; it's Italian American. She'd never heard of it, which, of course, I was both very funny and and kind of you know what you're talking about, right? The specificity of it. Totally, and so and it's. It's And to me, I find it, like, I guess, um, culturally and maybe even anthropologically really important that that regionalism survives, because I think that that is precisely why they, are, they hold on. Italians are so sort of um, protective of their local traditions, which, and, which is why they, you know, persist and why still, you know, the grandmothers teach teach daughters and granddaughters how to make, you know, things the way that they're made in their town and not in the town next door. And um, as a person who loves history and details, I find that really uh, inspiring and important. But also on the uh, the flip side of that is that sometimes, like, they, uh, I've found that people who grew up in Italy and really hold to that tradition often will be kind of close-minded to or just ignorant about the things beyond. And so it can be that it's like a, it's the flip side, you know, it's the, what's the word, the other side of the knife or whatever. There's just. No, there's a rigidity to it. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So you give something up 
And I think it's really important to preserve traditions. And so I'm, I'm really happy for that part of it, but I also am sad in some ways that like exposure to other cultures, exposure to other parts of the world seems to be limited, you know, and I guess it's by necessity, but it is, it is kind of as an outsider, you come in and there's just this way where, yeah, people, even for me, and I, by the time I made it to Italy, I, I was a cook and I did know some basic things. And there was just a way where there was a lot of, oh, ha, 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 like, you know, Sabine, you don't know <laughs> that every, you know, every year, of course, we go to our family land and like put together the olive oil for the year and press and press our wine for the year. And of course, we save all of our glass jars and uh, make tomatoes, you know, and canned tomatoes in the summer. For the, there was just sort of a simplicity to the way ever, things are still done that in this increasingly sort of fast digital world, I find really um, inspiring and sort of nourishing to be around. And I think even though for me, my, that moment was, you know, almost 20 years ago, I still think um, it's, it's, it's just speaks to people because that's as humans, I feel like it's what we want. You know, I don't, I don't know. This is a really nuanced question and one I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about, but I do think I, yeah. So I'm having a hard time articulating what it is about Italy that I find so. No, I I think, I I think you just, I think you just did it. And the sort of preserving of tradition, I definitely think, and it's interesting, you know, that the slow food movement is very much a part of Italy and just sort of as a source point and, and then one that's connected all the way back up as, as a big proponent and participant of, of is Alice Waters at Chez Panis. So I think you, I think you've taken us full circle. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Samin about the big four elements of cooking in a little bit more detail. Uh, bear with us. We'll be right back. Like you, I probably spend more time thinking about adding whole grains to my diet than actually doing it. This weekend, I was inspired by a recipe on a bag of Bob's Red Mill steel-cut oats for a version of pilaf. I'm not a huge fan of oatmeal, but something savory appealed, so we gave it a try as a side dish for Saturday's family dinner. First, you toast the oats and then cook them much like rice. We use the recommended vegetable stock. When ready, you drain the oats through a sieve, rinsing with hot water to remove the starch, much like you do for certain noodle dishes to prevent clumping. I would have never thought of this technique to rid the cooked oats of their usual sticky texture. As a result, toasted oat pilaf, which includes lemon juice and zest, was light and refreshing, even lighter than rice. It also works for nearly every diet, as the recipe is vegan, gluten-free, and sugar-free, but still very tasty. It's all a reminder that when you're looking for quality, healthy food and helpful menu suggestions, you can count on Bob's Red Mill. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Use the discount code Julia's Kitchen, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products like their steel cut oats. So I thought it would be fun if we tried to give uh, the listener, Samin, a quick crash course in the big four elements of cooking. 
um, that you so cleverly framework in the book. So I have this idea, and and you haven't said you won't do it, so I'm just going <laughs> to go with it, that we could kind of do a lightning round about the key takeaways for each of the, the four elements. And I was going to do it one by one, just kind of, if there's one thing people should remember about salt, what is it? Um, the main thing to remember about salt is that it enhances flavor. So really craft it um, in, in getting your palate to a place where you are so attuned to the way your food tastes and what a little pinch of salt can do is really important. So um, I would say salt enhances flavor. And yeah, you got to search for the zing of food that's seasoned correctly. And the only way to do that is to taste thoughtfully, and you can taste anything thoughtfully, whether it's fast food, something that you have spent all day making, something that you're eating at someone else's house, and just taking a moment to think about it often um, will give you a frame of reference, like a note card in your files, if you will, (laughs) to get to the point where um, you eventually will start to develop an intuition for a sense for when things need more salt or less salt or what a little pinch of salt can do. Got it. So salt enhances flavor, but the only way you're really going to know that is by tasting. So what, okay. exactly. The takeaway on fat. What's the one key thing on fat? Um, on fat, the idea is fat really is uh, what determines texture in a lot of our food. That gives us five incredible textures: crispy, um, flaky, <laughs> um, creamy, tender, and light. And tender, tender, and Flaky are sort of the two pastry textures that I I refer to. Mm -hmm. So once you can familiarize yourself with these different textures and how using fat will give them to you, you can make better choices to get the texture that you want. Wow, that's neat. That that that's definitely a new 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 framework for me. So how about about acid? (laughs) Acid. Well, so whereas salt um, enhances flavor, acid balances it. And so a lot of the time, if something is salty enough, but it doesn't really, um, it's still not sort of coming alive on your tongue, that just means that the dish or the bite needs a little bit of acid to bring it to life and deliver contrast. So sort of familiarizing yourself with all of the sort of surprising sources of acid, anything fermented, even chocolate and coffee, um, that can help bring your food to life, and you can use acidic things to balance bites and dishes. Super. Now, I think the last one is maybe the hardest one, so I'm really curious what you're going to say is the, the, the one key takeaway of heat. What is that? Yeah, so I would say the one key takeaway of heat is that most foods prosper either at gentle heat or intense heat, and so figuring out that whether an ingredient, often tender things, that ingredients that are already tender, say um, a chicken breast, will, will really benefit most from an intense source of heat applied only for a brief amount of time, whether that's grilling or searing or roasting at a high temperature. And then um, whereas ingredients that are tough and need to be coaxed into tenderness whether that's like a tough dry bean or a tough oxtail <laughs> or a tough yeah. chicken thigh, those things more typically need um, gentle heat applied for a longer period of time to become tender. So it's not so much the, the like form of heat or the specific you know cooking uh, medium that you're using, whether it's you're cooking over 
a grill, over a fire, or in a hot oven. It's more the level of heat that matters. And once that clicks for you, you suddenly realize the whole world opens up and something that you've always cooked on the stove, you can now cook while you're camping, you know, <laughs> because it doesn't matter that it's the stove or the, or the campfire. It matters that you're applying the right type of heat. Well done. You, so you've just boiled down your four, more than 400-page book into four key takeaways. But but I still highly recommend that everyone check it out because there's so many more interesting things and ideas and, and frameworks. And one of the things that also struck me that, that you talk about both in the book and how it leads with the techniques and the science and understanding how these um, elements interplay and you don't present it super scientifically, but it's essentially science. That is how these things react in cooking. But and I, I've read that you talked about how you deliberately, in fact, originally, if you could have had your your druthers, would have not included recipes. But and I think that in an effort to get people to understand cooking better, there's been it's become more fashionable to try to talk people out of being reliant on recipes. But I feel like we're now moving to like a little bit of a backlash where there, there's almost a denigration of recipes. And I think that it's I understand the intent but I also think, you know, it's like we, we, we can't do anything but an extreme. So, so I wanted to ask you, do you think recipes still matter? Oh, I definitely do. And I think I always make fun of myself because as much as I'm the person who's like, I hate recipes, da, 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 I would have never had them in my book. You know, like the book is based on these courses that I, I taught for, for several years and by the end, they were structured in such a way that I would be with the students for like anywhere from 20 to 30 hours. And so by the end, you know, the whole time I'd say like, let's just taste our way there. Here are the steps. Now, you know, now we're doing it intuitively. And it, every single time, the very last day, they would say, oh, okay, where do we, when do we get the recipe packet for everything we've made? <laughs> and I would always think, you know, we just spent all this time. The whole point is you don't need the recipes. And then I realized, as a, you know, that it was my job as a teacher to give people, you know, expecting them after 20 or 30 hours to understand how to cook intuitively is completely insane. And so, <laughs> and so, and of course people, you know, like I, it's my job to guide people and to give them what they need. And so, um, imposing my own crazy ideas on top of it isn't really actually helpful. And so what people need, you know, I can't throw them to the sharks. They do need uh, some guides and nobody, it's, I'm a professional and um, and like an enthusiast. And so, of course, I have memorized so many things. Of course, I understand them in this grander framework. But when you're just trying to get dinner on the table at home, it's not your job to know every spice combination, you know, Western Africa or whatever. <laughs> so it's okay to have references. It's okay to have um, something to refer to and, and to guide you. My problem with recipes isn't so much with recipes. It's with... Um, the fact that the, I think for the most part, the internet has created um, sort of because of like the never ending hunger for new content, there's mm. there a lot of what used to go into recipes doesn't happen anymore. There used to be so much research and fine tuning and multiple rounds of testing and, and a level of care before anything was published that, you know, it, what the reader and the, and the, and the cook were sort of the ultimate um, arbiters of, of value. And now that seems to have disappeared except for from a few sources, you know, because 
it costs money and it takes time to do all of that work to test mm-hmm. a recipe and do it properly. And so things just get published and then, but the reader doesn't necessarily know that. There's no way of knowing for them that, that um, this thing, you know, someone wrote it at a desk, not in a kitchen. <laughs> Well, and you also that that's interesting. You, you just reminded me of you need to, as a cook, understand certain elements. I remember someone brought me a recipe and said, "Oh, I really want to try this, and you know, have your kids try it." And they're, they're like a very healthy muffin. And I looked at the recipe, and like they were talking like it wasn't blueberry, but they meant like a blueberry muffin, that kind of thing. And I looked at the recipe, and I was like, "It doesn't really have any fat, and it doesn't have any grain of any kind in it." So I'm like, it's basically an egg cup of some, like an egg souffle thing. But of course, that person didn't know that from looking at it. And she was like, no, 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 it's really good. And she made it. And it was like a little egg souffle. Because of course, I knew enough to know that it was missing two of the core elements that make something into a muffin. Exactly, exactly. So I think if you don't understand those basics, and then you're just relying on somebody else, you'll be surprised, you know, or you can be led astray. Whereas I feel like my goal with these four elements is to give people the tools to be able to look at a recipe and know if it's going to work or not, or at least be able to picture what it is that they're going to get. You know, a big moment for me was with um, cakes, because and I when I, I sort of put together that I love the texture of cake mix cakes, I think because my mom didn't let me eat them as a kid, so then naturally yeah. that's all I ever wanted. And I love <laughs> that moist sort of spongy texture. And and then once I started cooking professionally and baking things and sort of t- tasting all the cakes at work all of the time, I realized that the common element between the cakes that I loved at work and these cake mix cakes was the oil. You know, a lot of cakes were made with butter, and I, I don't love the texture of butter cake as much as I love the texture of oil cake. So then I realized next time I wanted to make a carrot cake, I would come look for a recipe that had oil in it instead of butter so that I could get the texture I wanted. Is that actually is that because oil the oil actually traps the moisture a little bit better than butter? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't, because the oil is 100% fat and butter has some percentage of water, there's a way gluten is developed in butter cakes that it's not developed in oil cakes. And so oil cakes are often much moister, also because there's often the addition of water as well as oil. And then, and that oil, or the water remains as moisture rather than like turning into like tougher gluten. Yeah, I know. That's a great tip. Free tip today. Yeah, if I can sort of like give those little things and, and learn how to look for them myself, that's, I think, what's important. So I, I I still refer to recipes all the time, and it's funny because now I have a job where I have to write write them, you know, um, both for this book and also in the New York Times. And I take that responsibility really seriously because I want to make sure that whatever I'm telling you to make works, you know, I'm going to feel bad. If it doesn't work, it's not your fault, it's my fault. And um, and I my hope is that you know, we can sort of reclaim a little bit of um, of that as recipe writers for people and reclaim that responsibility so that people don't feel like they're failing. Because the thing I would be so sad about is if somebody made something and they felt like they had done something wrong 
but it was actually my fault. <laughs> and then they didn't want to cook anymore, you know, or they felt so depressed about that, that they would never try that. No, and that 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 happens, and and in that you can, if if you have some experience, you can tell a lot of recipes are not as well written as they should be, and it's often because they skip some, not usually an ingredient, but some form of instruction in the process that. Um, is important. And I think actually, if you learn Italian food, which is fairly simplistic and compared to other cuisines in terms of the ingredients and the the techniques, but a lot of the most amazing dishes, it's all about the order. And if you don't go in the right order of the process, you will end up with something that's inedible. Exactly. Exactly. I'm thinking of a carbonara right now. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of this this wonderful eggplant dish that I learned to make that you once I forgot to cook the eggplant before and served it raw, and it was horrific. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because uh, we're getting getting uh, close on time, and I don't want to lose out on your Julia moment, but I did want to ask you, because I think there's some quite exciting things, and I don't know how much you can reveal, but I wanted to ask you about kind of what's next and what's coming up. I heard something about you're working on a documentary, and so what can you tell us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's really exciting, because the book is being adapted into a documentary series um, that will be out later this year, we're pretty much done working on it. And so it's, it's going to translate, ideally, I hope if we achieve our goal, it will translate a lot of the basic elements of the book um, into a, a visual narrative on the screen. And so we went to four different locations and explored each of the four different elements in depth and tell stories about places. And, you know, what it sort of uh, allowed me to do in a way that I couldn't do in the book was really show how these four things are so universal. And we went to four vastly different countries and, um, and still everything is there, you know, salt plays a role in where, wherever you go, because, and that was kind of, I think I, I realized it on a whole new level too, the universality of it, because, um, so many of these things, you know, our bodies don't produce salt, yet we need it. Our bodies can't produce all of the right types of fat, so we have to take some in. Um, acid, you know, there, there's this incredible bodily response to acid, which is your mouth starts watering. But even before you eat something acidic, you can just think about something acidic, like a lemon, and your mouth will start watering because your body's response to eating something acidic is to fill your mouth with saliva so that your teeth don't corrode because saliva will neutralize acid. And so there's this incredible way where all of these elements um, are just human, you know, and, and that, especially in this like extremely sort of divisive time that we are, are currently inhabiting, I found it really inspiring to find these ways in which, you know, we're united and our tastes as humans are united, and we, as as people in all these different cult countries and cultures, have just found all of these different ways to um, use the same ingredients to the same ends. And I love that. I think it tells an incredible story about us as humans. So I'm not exactly sure when. My network still hasn't told me or announced the show, but um, sometime later this year, the show will be out for right. everyone to see, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> and do you know where they will be able to see it, or is that still up in the air, too? I'm also, I do know where, but I can't tell you. <laughs> I know I've heard it's a big secret. All right. Well, if it's still a secret, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and you'll, you'll let us know and we'll share, share the, share the word at the appropriate time. And what, what about the IACP um, foundation grant that comes with your first book 
um, award. Do you, do you know yet what you're going to do with that? Well, I'm re- I feel really, really lucky because um, I got to speak with Lexi, who is, I guess, the coordinator of the grant. And so she, um, I told her my idea, which was I really wanted to pour that grant money, which I'm so grateful for, into promoting the, like, sort of the second round. This book, the show is going to give the book a second life. And so mm. um, I really want to use that to sort of continue spreading this. Because I, as I'm starting to think about what I'm going to do next, I mean, it's really funny. I was just talking to my friend Cal, who's one of my mentors, Cal Peter Nell, and he's, he's also, like, an incredible chef and has written all these books. And he said, you know, what are you going to do now? Everyone wants to know what I'm doing next. And I'm still just running on fumes from promoting the book and making the show and all this kind of stuff. So I haven't had the chance really to think about what's next. And he said, yeah, that's the problem of writing a comprehensive book is like, you don't really have to write another one. <laughs> but uh, I know for my own self that I, I will. And, and I, I, I think whereas this first book teaches you sort of how to cook, whatever I do next will be a little bit more focused on what to cook and making decisions about what to cook. So um, I haven't fully found figured out a framework about it, but I am looking forward to having some quiet time and sort of re refilling my, you know, coffers. <laughs> well, I think that's a great framework. You might have like seven books if you do all the questions where you started with how, you're gonna to move to what, and then the third book can be why, and you're 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 you'll that that's your next twenty years right there. All right. Well thank you, Samin. After after the break we're gonna come back and Samin's gonna reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she inspired in their how she inspired them in their career. So, Samin, what's your Julia moment? Oh, man, I love this story so much. So, um, the, and, and unfortunately, this did not happen to me, but um, it's so close to me that I, I, I've claimed it as my story. So um, one of my friends, Nathan, who is a chef now at Chez Panisse, we really came up together. He, as, as a young cook, used to work at Sur La Table, like uh, facilitating cooking classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so at one point, um, Julia was coming up to teach at the Surlatob in Berkeley. And so this story is uh, from Nathan, my friends Nathan and Abby, and they were telling me how she was coming up, I think, on a Saturday. And so she decided to drive. And it's a pretty short flight from Santa Barbara up to Oakland. So like one would think that she would have flown. So they asked her, oh, why did you decide to drive instead of fly? And she said, oh, because if I flew, I couldn't stop at every single In-N-Out burger on the way, <laughs> on the way from Santa Barbara to Oakland. And I just loved that so much. <laughs> you know, like the idea of going to In-N-Out burger and how much, you know, joy that brought her and the idea of like wanting to get into a car so that you can eat a 
so that like the food that you get to eat on your trip is, is, you know, I'm totally the person who decides how and where and when to go based on, you know, when we get to eat. And so... No, that absolutely captures the joyous spirit that, you know, the journey is part of the part of the joy and where you can eat along that journey is is also part of the joy, even if it's in an outburger, which which I still think is uniquely California fascination. But <laughs> it really is. Californians are obsessed with it. So, well, on the in and out burger story from uh, Samin. We're going to thank everyone for joining us today and uh, let us know what you think about today's show. Reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can like us on Facebook, search at Julia Child, or you can follow the foundation on Twitter. We're at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. And on Instagram, you can search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. Samin's book, again, is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Element of Good Cooking with Art by Wendy McNaughton, and published by Simon & Schuster last year. It's available at bookstores everywhere and, of course, online. If you want to follow Samin on social media, her handle is at Chow Samin on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you're not Italian, Chow is C-I-A-O. And if you're not Iranian-American, Samin is S-A-M-I-N. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The Front Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single upcoming episode. And again, for season two, we're now on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and the downloads will be available soon after. And another reminder that we're now available on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify subscriber or know someone who is, another easy way to catch us. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.